The following is a sermon preached at the First Presbyterian Church of Jackson, Mississippi. Uh, Now, if you would, take a copy of God's Word in your hands. We are continuing um, our January intensive. We are doing an overview of the whole book of Romans in the course of the month of January, covering large sections of the book, Sunday morning, Sunday evening, and on Wednesday night, so that we cover the entirety of Paul's letter to the Romans in this one month. Uh, We've come today to the 11th chapter of Paul's letter, which you can find on page 946 of the church Bibles. In chapters 1 through 3, Paul gave us the bad news about human sin. In chapters uh, 3 and 4, he gave us the good news about the righteousness of Christ available to sinners received by faith alone. And then in chapters 5 through 8, he outlined the implications of the gospel. We have peace with God. We have assurance of salvation. We have growing personal holiness under the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And last Wednesday evening, we looked at chapters 9 and 10 together, and we saw Paul turn from the individual uh, to the universal, from the experience of the private Christian to the cosmic scope of God's saving design purposed in eternity in the mysterious uh, divine counsels of God in election, and working by the means of grace, the preaching of the Word and the prayers of God's people to bring the gospel to the ends of the earth. And now this morning, Paul concludes that fourth section of Paul's letter here in chapter 11, where he deals with the fate of the Jewish people in particular and offers us bright hope for the future related to the evangelization of the nations. And before we look at the passage in any detail, there are a couple of things we need to address by way of preface. First of all, at the moment, with the the nation of Israel very much under the national attention and in the news, it's not uncommon for conservative Christians in contemporary America to confuse the modern secular uh, nation-state of Israel with the biblical references to Israel and to the Jewish people. But the two are not the same thing. As uh, we're going to see, the passage before us holds out the promise of the future conversion of the mass of the Jewish people around the world, but it has nothing to say about the political validity of any action of the modern, democratic, secular state of Israel. We must not confuse these two things. A zeal for the salvation of the Jews, which the Bible commands from us all, is not the same thing as political support for the modern Israeli state, to which a subject on which the Bible is entirely silent. Political support for Israel may be good and right and proper, but the Bible has absolutely nothing to say about it, and this pulpit will therefore remain silent on the question. Our concern is with the eternal destinies of Jewish people and Gentile people all over the world, not the rise and fall of geopolitical, the geopolitical fortunes of modern nation-states. That's the first thing to say. The second thing to say is that Reformed and Presbyterian churches like ours have historically pointed to this chapter of Romans in particular as a major incentive 
both for Jewish evangelism and for global missions as a whole. So, for example, the Westminster Larger Catechism, expounding the Lord's Prayer in question and answer 191, echoes the language of our chapter in Romans 11.25 when it says, in the second petition, which is, Thy kingdom come, acknowledging ourselves and all mankind to be by nature under the dominion of sin and Satan, we pray that the kingdom of sin and Satan may be destroyed, the gospel propagated throughout the world, the Jews called, and the fullness of the Gentiles brought in. The same Westminster Assembly that wrote the Confession and Catechisms also produced a directory for the public worship of God, which required ministers to pray, quote, for the propagation of the gospel, the kingdom of Christ, and the kingdom of Christ to all nations, for the conversion of the Jews, the fullness of the Gentiles, the fall of Antichrist, and the hastening of the second coming of our Lord. Notice again there the language of Romans 11.25. Based on our passage this morning, our Puritan and Reformed forebears believed that one day a point in the evangelization of the Gentiles around the world will be reached, a point unknown to us, but determined by God in His eternal and inscrutable purposes. And when it is reached, a remarkable awakening among the Jewish people will take place bringing them to faith in their Messiah at last, and enfolding them once again into the covenant community, the people of God, the church of Jesus Christ. This awakening among the Jews, our passage will teach us, will spell in turn even greater blessing for the rest of the world as the gospel penetrates into every tribe and language and nation before the return of Christ. And in this way, a whole theology of missions was developed that worked to bring the fullness of the Gentiles in so that the Jews might be called and all the nations evangelized. Sadly, we have largely lost that vision, clouding it and confusing it with political and sometimes with faulty theological opinions so that now we rarely pray for the conversion of the Jews and rarely focus on Jewish evangelism, themes that were once a hallmark of Reformed missions, but they've almost disappeared from the minds of most modern missiologists and mission-sending agencies, not to mention most ordinary churches and ordinary Christians to boot. But in my judgment, a, a recovery of the teaching of this chapter, as our forefathers understood it, would greatly help inflame a new generation or, uh, to, to bring the gospel of Jesus Christ to the world and propel an army of missionaries zealous for the good news to go into all the world and make disciples. Well, all of that said by way of preface, would you take your Bibles in hand and look with me, please, at Romans chapter 11? You'll remember in chapter 9, where this whole section of the letter began, Paul told us about God's eternal purposes in election, choosing to show mercy on some sinners out of the mass of fallen humanity, and leaving the rest and passing them by that they may face the just judgment for their sin. And then in chapter 10, Paul reminded us that the discriminating choice of God in election and predestination actually supports rather than undermines the missionary impulse that so drives the Apostle Paul and which the Apostle also seeks to cultivate in the Romans to whom he is writing. And along the way, I wonder if you notice this really throughout the whole of Romans, but especially in Romans 9 through 11, the mysterious unbelief of the Jewish people 
and the ready welcome of the gospel among many Gentiles has been a constant theme for Paul. And now here in chapter 11, Paul stops to explain why that has happened. How come the Jews, who were the recipients, after all, of the covenant and the Old Testament Scriptures and the promise of a Messiah, how come God's ancient covenant people, the Jews, have largely rejected their Messiah, and the Gentiles, who had none of those great privileges, have received and welcomed Him? That's the question. What is God doing? And Paul's answer to that question comes in three parts. First of all, verses 1 through 10, it has to do, of course, with divine election. God's sovereignty explains why some Jews believe, but most have not. Secondly, so divine election. Secondly, the Gentile mission is a big part of the explanation. God has a plan to bring the gospel to the Gentiles, and He talks about that in verses 11 through 24. And then thirdly, God is resolved that the gospel would expand, that it will in fact reach into every corner of the world. And so, divine election, Gentile mission, gospel expansion in 25 through 36. So, those are our three headings, divine election, the Gentile mission, and gospel expansion. Before we get to them, let's pause and pray, and then we'll read a few portions of chapter 11 together, uh, and then study God's Word. Let us pray. Our God and Father, would You open now our eyes, we pray. Send us Your Spirit anew. Give us illumination and understanding and grace meekly to receive the teaching of Your Holy Word for the glory of the name of Christ. Amen. Romans chapter 11 at verse 1, this is the Word of God. I ask then, has God rejected His people? By no means, for I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected His people whom He foreknew. Do you not know what the Scripture says of Elijah, how he appealed to God against Israel? Lord, they've killed your prophets, they've demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works, otherwise grace would no longer be grace. Then turn to verse 13. Verse 13, now I am speaking to you Gentiles. Inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? If the dough offered as firstfruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. And then verse 25, verse 25, lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the Deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob, and this will be my covenant with them. 
when I take away their sins. Amen. And we praise God that He has spoken in His holy and errant Word. John Piper famously once wrote that missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is. Mission exists because worship does not. Worship is ultimate, not missions, because God is ultimate, not man. When this age is over, writes Piper, and the countless millions of the redeemed fall on their faces before the throne of God, missions will be no more. It is a temporary necessity, but worship abides forever. Worship, therefore, is the fuel and goal of missions. Paul, if you look at verses 33 through 36, which was our call to worship this morning, at the end of this chapter makes precisely the same point, doesn't he? He has surveyed, as we're going to see, the dazzling plan of God to bring the gospel, which Paul has been outlining in the first eight chapters of this letter, to bring that gospel to every tribe and language and people and nation. It's breathtaking in its scope, in its grandeur. And as he takes it in, as he surveys it for us here in chapter 11, he can't contain himself any longer, and he erupts in praise and doxology. Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and knowledge of God! How unsearchable are His judgments! How inscrutable His ways! For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been His counselor? Or who has given a gift to Him that it should be repaid? For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be glory forever. Amen. You see, for Paul, the great end and design of God in ordering all things so that one day the whole world will hear the gospel, is the glory and praise of God's great name. And as Paul glimpses that design in this chapter, exactly that comes pouring from his heart. Look how wise God is. Look how inscrutable His purposes. Whoever would have planned it like this? And yet, how glorious are God's plans. All things are His and ultimately they serve His glory. God's plan for mission makes Paul worship. And as we think about it uh, and think about the cause of global mission in this chapter, we need to keep Paul's priority firmly in view. The point of taking the gospel to the world is not ultimately to see people converted. The point of mission isn't to see sinners saved. The point of mission is the glory of God in the salvation of sinners. It is the praise of His name rising from more and more hearts brought out of darkness and into His marvelous light. Mission is focused not on man, but on God. And the God-centeredness of missions is very much at the heart of Romans chapter 11. Would you look at it with me, please? Remember the question that Paul is answering. You'll see it in verse 1. Why don't the Jews, God's ancient covenant people, why don't they believe in their own Messiah? Verse 1, I ask then, has God rejected His people? What is God up to in the way that history has unfolded so unexpectedly, so counterintuitively, with the Jewish people denying the Christ, 
and many Gentiles embracing him? Well, Paul's answer, as we said a moment ago, first of all, has to do with divine election. We won't spend much time on this. We dealt with it extensively in chapter 9. Paul is largely restating his point, but do notice how he says, not all the Jews have rejected Christ. Paul himself, after all, is Jewish, uh, descended from Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin, verse 1. And just as in the days of Elijah, when the, the, the mass of, of the people of Israel rejected their God and turned to worship idols, so then and now God had preserved a remnant, verse 5, chosen by grace. So, verse 7, Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect have obtained it. The rest were hardened. Paul is recapping what he said in chapter 9. The reason why some Jews believe has to do with the mystery of God's sovereignty, the mystery of election and predestination. And yet, according to the sovereign plan of God, some Jews do still believe. A remnant remains according to the election of grace. But of course, that's only part of Paul's explanation. God, it turns out, has a wider design in the surprising providence of Jewish unbelief. It does have to do with divine election in the first place, but it also has to do in the second place with God's plan for the Gentile mission. Look at verses 11 through 24, please. You'll notice immediately in verse 11 that the fall of the Jews into unbelief is not a fall beyond recovery. Did they stumble that they might fall? Is their corporate rejection of Jesus final? By no means, Paul says. Their rejection serves a missionary purpose. Verse 11 again, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles, to non-Jews, to the nations, so as to make Israel jealous. So, God still plans on the conversion of the Jews and of how, and how He will accomplish uh, that plan is by provoking the Jews to jealousy, showing them Gentiles like most of us, trusting in the Jewish Messiah ahead of them. But more even than that, God has a very specific program for the future of the global missionary cause. Look at verse 12. Verse 12, if their trespass, he means the Jewish rejection of Jesus, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure, their failure to believe, means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? In the wake of the Jewish rejection of Jesus, the gospel went to the Gentiles. It reached us, didn't it? And, and we came to know the Lord Jesus because uh, propelled outward from its epicenter in Jerusalem, the gospel began to spread around the globe. That much is very clear here in Paul's teaching. But then do you see Paul making an argument from the lesser to the greater? He says, if their rejection means our blessing, how much more wonderful will it be for us when they are included once more by faith in Jesus Christ back into the people of God? And notice carefully, his point here is not an aspiration. It's not a wish. It's not a mere possibility not even a missionary priority to which he and we both should work. It is stated as an inevitability, as a future promise. 
the Jews one day will be included once again. And what a day, Paul is saying, that will be for the whole world. And just to be sure we get what he's saying, he repeats the point in verse 15. Would you look there, please, verse 15? Still arguing from the lesser to the greater, he says, if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, the whole lump is also holy. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. A relatively small number of Jews believed in Jesus in Paul's day, and sadly that is still true in our day. But those who believe among the Jewish people, they are only the first fruits, Paul is saying. The first fruits, you might remember, were consecrated, the first fruits of the harvest consecrated to God as sacrifice in the temple. But the whole harvest, it was a way to say, all of this is from you and is for you. It's all yours. It's all for your glory. There's a greater harvest yet to come of which these first fruits are but the portent and the promise. The few Jews who believe, Paul is saying, they're only the roots, but the branches one day will spread wide and bear much fruit. A bright future hope for the Jews and through them for the whole world is being promised to us. Do you see it? And please don't miss the way Paul sort of hits the pause button for a moment and turns to address his largely Gentile audience in the letter to the Romans with a word of application. It's a word we may yet still need to hear ourselves. Twice over, Paul insists that his teaching here should generate great humility in our hearts. Gentiles, he says in verses 17 to 21, are wild branches cut from an uncultivated tree, and the natural branches, the Jews, growing from the cultivated olive tree of God's covenant people, were cut off in their unbelief so that we could be grafted in in their place. But if some of the branches were broken off so you could be grafted in, verse 18, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Or verse 20, they were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand fast through faith, so do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, He will not spare you." The Gentile church has been grafted into the one covenant people of God, a covenant established with Abraham. Many Jews were cut off from that cultivated, cultivated olive tree so that we could be grafted in. And so, Paul is saying, we ought not uh, to despise our Jewish neighbors, as sadly in the history of the church far, far too many Christians have done. The root from which they and we both have sprung, the root of God's ancient covenant promise, supports us. The Gentile church has been brought into their inheritance, their privileges by faith in their Messiah. And so, a posture of gratitude, of indebtedness, of humility toward the Jews should mark us, not pride. We are not members of the people of God because we are superior and the Jewish people are inferior. That is an ugly lie which we all know has persisted across the ages, but it finds no support whatever in Holy Scripture. 
but more than just humility toward the Jewish people. Paul says his teaching here should generate deep humility in our hearts toward God, before God. Look at verse 22. Note the kindness and severity of God, severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness toward you, provided you continue in His kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. In other words, we are not special. God cut them off for their prideful rejection of the very idea that they needed Jesus. He will cut us off too if we believe that we are favored because we deserve to be, that we are elite, that we are special. No, we owe all the privileges of salvation entirely to the kindness of God. It's all mercy. It's all gifts. Note, Paul says, the kindness and severity of God. Let it register. Let it sink in. Don't miss that. Don't miss this. And humble yourself before Him, to whom you owe your whole eternity. It is faith in Messiah Jesus in His work, not your work, in His obedience and blood alone, in His mercy and grace alone that has secured your place in the covenant people of God. You ought not to boast, but to tremble in reverent awe before the God of all grace. Note the kindness and severity of God. So, only a remnant of the Jews believe, first, because of divine election, 1 through 10. And secondly, history unfolds the way it does because of God's plan for a Gentile mission. He intends for non-Jews to come to faith in Jesus, verses 11 through 24. But they were also cut off, Paul says, because God has a plan for worldwide global gospel expansion. Gospel expansion, verses 25 through 32. I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. The phrase, the fullness of the Gentiles, I take to refer, as I said in the preface of this message, to God's ordained moment when the Gentile mission around the world reaches that point assigned in God's providence at which the conversion of the mass of the Jewish people will begin in earnest. And then their inclusion, as verse 12 taught us, will mean much more riches for the world. Their acceptance will be like life from the dead by comparison to what we know now, verse 15. Romans 11 is teaching us that one day the bulk of the Jewish people will come to faith in their Messiah at last and be grafted back into the covenant people, the one church of Jesus Christ. And when they are, it will begin a revival of a global scale, on a global scale. Now, I do not believe, as some people do, in a golden age at the end of history, when the whole world will be Christianized. I think it's very clear in Scripture, in passages like the one before us, that God does indeed promise remarkable gospel success before the end of the age, before Jesus returns. But He also promises in other places in Holy Scripture that keeping pace with gospel success, there will be a commensurate hostile reaction from the unbelieving world. 
Persecution will grow right alongside gospel advance. Opposition will gain momentum right along with revival and kingdom growth. But be that as it may, we must not lose sight of the teaching of the Apostle Paul that the future of the gospel is bright. It's bright. Do you believe that? The future of the gospel is bright. I think we're sometimes guilty of thinking that things are worse now than they have ever been. We are prone, aren't we, to catastrophize, to, to declare that the moral decay and the decline of the church is more rapid in our generation than in any time previously. Sometimes church leaders even try to motivate renewed dedication to discipleship and evangelism by scaring church members with dire predictions of impending doom, the final collapse of the church, the end of civilization as we know it, the eradication of all hope. And so you guys better start praying and giving and going on mission. Otherwise, it's curtains for the church in our generation. But that squares neither with the evidence of history nor with the teaching of the New Testament Scriptures. Yes, we should expect things to get harder, maybe even harder than they have ever been before for those who profess faith in Jesus Christ. But in that difficult context, Paul teaches us the gospel will shine brighter than ever before one day. You remember Paul wants to enlist the Roman Christians, as we're going to see when we get to chapter 15. The purpose behind this letter was for when Paul arrives in Rome, for Paul to make Rome his base because he's planning to leave them to go on to Spain on a further leg of his missionary endeavor. And so, he doesn't simply want to teach them. He wants to teach them in such a way that he awakens in them zeal and confidence in God's plan for the expansion of the gospel to the ends of the earth. He wants to create a mission-sending force in the church at Rome. And so, he's giving them here a whole theology of missions that doesn't drive them, doesn't drive us forward with the whip of guilt or the fearful threat of looming defeat unless we do something about it, but rather Paul's missiology rings with bright gospel optimism, gospel optimism. Now, I know I hide it well, but as a Scotsman, I am natively pessimistic. I know that will come as a great surprise to you. Uh, but I have to say that I think my pessimism about myself and my pessimism regarding human wisdom and human institutions and human culture, I think that's entirely supported by Holy Scripture. No kidding. But listen now, neither my native Scottish pessimism nor perhaps your tendency to catastrophize have any place in our Christian hearts when it comes to the prospect of the, for the gospel itself. I doubt myself. I doubt human wisdom. I doubt human institutions. Maybe you do too. That's well and good. That may be the course of wisdom. But do not doubt that one day the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Do not doubt 
that men and women, boys and girls, more numerous than anyone can number, will be found at the last pressing in around the throne of God and of the Lamb, mingling their voices in adoring wonder that they should be found among the redeemed of the earth. Paul wants us to grasp and believe and act in light of the sure, certain promise of gospel success and kingdom advance. We are to be the instruments of God in bringing good news to the nations. That plan certainly may endure many setbacks, fall foul of many human errors, no doubt, endure for sure much persecution before the fullness of the Gentiles comes in. But the plan, let's never forget, is nonetheless the plan of God. And God's plans never fail. They never fail. The fullness of the Gentiles will come in as we bring the gospel across the street and around the world, and then all Israel, all God's people, Jews and Gentiles alike, all the elect in the purposes of God will be saved. And so, Paul is saying to the Roman Christians, he's saying to you and me, do not grow weary in well-doing. Do not lose heart as you bear witness for Jesus. Do not let the day of small things, that's how it feels to us often, the day of small things. Do not let the day of small things today lead you to the misplaced conclusion that it's all downhill for the gospel from here on out. No, the gospel's future is bright. It's bright. And we are its servants. We are the agents of God to bring that gospel to the world. So be bold. Believe God more than you believe your eyes and your ears as you look around you in our culture right now. Give your support to global mission. Pray for the lost. Pray for the missionaries that we send across the street and around the world to reach the lost. Preach Christ to your friends and family and neighbors. And see that the arm of the Lord is not shortened, that it cannot save. See what God will do when you take Him at His word. As Paul takes all of that in, as we said at the beginning in verses 33 through 36, he can hardly contain himself. The sense of excitement and wonder at God's plan and design overwhelms him, and he begins to sing. He marvels at the master plan, and that's what he wants for us. He wants us to be so captured and emboldened and excited by His purposes that we begin to praise and adore His name and go with new determination to bring many, many more along with us into the joy and celebration of His great grace, that His praises may reach from shore to shore and all glory might be His. May God make it so and help us to get up and go to the world to bring the nations to adore the Lamb who was slain for sinners. Let's pray together. Our God and Father, we praise You that whatever the competing voices of our culture may whisper in our ears and the pessimism of cable news and the politics of fear, the promise You have given us 
is that one day the fullness of the Gentiles will come in and all Israel will be saved. Your gospel will not, cannot fail. We know that's true because the tomb is empty and the throne occupied. Jesus has triumphed over the grave. He reigns as King of kings and Lord of lords already. And so of the increase and of His government and of peace there shall be no end. Forgive us for doubting it, for losing sight of it, for giving more attention to the negativity of the culture, for catastrophizing and help us instead to give our first attention to Your holy promise. We pray not only that we might get a hold of it, but that it might get a hold of us. And so awaken in us zeal for the lost, mingled with wonder and confidence in Your sovereign purpose, that all praise might be Yours for Jesus' sake. Amen.